Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. It is November the 18th, and Trump, of course, continues to dominate the news with his nationalism, his propaganda, his supposed virility and of self-evident corruption and the threat of violence which still hovers over America. Trump, of course, has dominated uh, our show. Uh, we've had probably too many shows about Trump uh, recently. Um, but we've also had, um, to me, the, the great focus on Trump. I mean, if we're to capture one image of Trump, it was outside the church in Washington, D.C., promoting himself as a hard man, as, 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 as an authority, perhaps representing God in some sort of weird way. The other figure is the ruler of Russia, Vladimir Putin. We've had a number of shows, again, about his nationalism, his propaganda, above all else, his perceived virility. Uh, Trump and Putin are, of course, strong men or seen as strong men or like to think of themselves as strong men. My Guest on the show today, Ruth Ben Giat, is the author of a really interesting new book called, appropriately, Strongmen Mussolini <laughs> to the Present. Uh, Ruth, to start, what is a strong man? So, this is the term that it's a term in current usage, but I'm using it in the book. They're a subset of authoritarian leader. They are, they, can, they are people who damage uh, or destroy democracy, but they also use hyper-masculinity or virility, as I call it in the book, as a strategy of political legitimacy, both in their presentation to their own people and in their relations with other world leaders. Therefore, uh, Vladimir Putin's obsession with showing off his uh, his breast what, what is it about putin and virility i mean i don't want to get all freudian on you ruth but uh <laughs> are, are these men suffering huge sense of sexual inadequacy the one of the secrets of without getting i'm not going to get freudian on you either one of the secrets of the strong man is that they're weak and insecure and uh, the way they arrange their governance, uh, which is to have these inner circles full of sycophants and flatterers or people from their youth who they can trust, um, is indicative of how fearful they are. So I, I conclude in the book that they, everything they do is also dictated by fear. It's aggression and fear, this kind of uh, seesaw of these two things. Ruth, your academic specialty is the history, the modern history of Italy. And the two characters who I think dominate your book, in addition, of course, to these various strong men, are Mussolini and Berlusconi. Uh, your history begins, as I said, with Mussolini. What is it about Mussolini that makes him the, the founding strong man of modernity? 
So Mussolini gets a bit of a short shrift and the mind always goes to Hitler when we mention fascists and there's very good reasons for that. But Mussolini, uh, he was in power uh, a long time before Hitler came into power and Hitler actually worshipped him to the point where he had a bust of Mussolini on his desk in the 1920s and other Nazis thought this was unseemly. So Mussolini understood uh, that World War I was going to change everything. And, and, that, and he said, democracy is going to die and we need something new. Mussolini also understood he was a journalist by training. He understood how to use his body in front of the camera. And he had an enormous uh, appearance in the United States. He was in hundreds of newsreels. So he, he laid down the foundations along with the communists at the same time in the 20s we learned from of the modern personality cult, including uh, setting a precedent, which we see with our own Donald Trump of being a decidedly unpious person um, who was the one who, who had religious backing in his case with the Catholic church. He was the one who made the Lateran Accords. Um, so, so many things about the authoritarian playbook, uh, the template was laid down by Mussolini. Yeah, I was struck in, in, in your section on your excellent section in Mussolini on, in your book, in a, in a conversation I had last week with the very distinguished film historian, uh, David Thompson, who argued mm -hmm. that the book that is still to be written about Trump, mm -hmm. is how Trump dominates the camera. Mm -hmm. Mussolini was the model there. He intuitively figured it out. He hadn't. He didn't read any books on it. He just was a, a master in, in front of the camera. Is that fair? The, yes, absolutely. He understood. What, one interesting thing is that the, the cult, these personality cults of political leaders came up at the same time as the golden age of Hollywood. And there was something about the synergy between the camera and Mussolini knew how to move his body and speak very well. And, and so there was kind of political stardom and glamorization of the male leader who's forceful and brutal. And so this is where the strongman thing comes from, which has carried over for a hundred years. As for Trump, um, I agree with you. Um, and I had just finished a book. I just published a book in 2015 on propaganda, on fascist film propaganda. And so when Trump started uh, having his rallies um, and doing loyalty oaths, but I saw how very attentive he was to the way he carried himself uh, as a, you know, the physical embodiment of authority is very important. And so I started writing about Trump in 2015 in the fall about how he was kind of uh, spreading neo-Nazi propaganda and how he was going to be a force to be reckoned with and would have a personality cult if he were elected. Uh, Ruth, if, if we had time, we, we could have a little section on Italian movies. I just uh, rewatched uh, Bertolucci's The Conformist, which is mm. a masterful portrayal, not of strong men, but of weak men in, in, in fascism. Uh, the Italian cinema, of course, or the rebirth of Italian cinema after the Second World War was very much founded on uh, an evaluation or a, a reevaluation of fascism. And the same is true of Germany. Could you imagine a revitalization of American cinema? Maybe not Hollywood, but of independent movie making in, in a post-Trump world? Well, actually, we've, we've seen uh, a revitalization of political uh, filmmaking in the, in the form of all of the political ads and short films uh, that have been made by Eleven Films, by uh, the Midas Touch, by the Lincoln Project. These are 
this is a different kind of cinema. But uh, I had been watching that very carefully since the beginning because I felt that, you know, democracy needs heroes. It needs very strong and uh, impactful messaging. And I was, I was meditating while I was writing the book about the fact that, you know, graphically, visually, it's been the communists and the fascists to have the effective messaging. And democracy's uh, visual identity has always been a bit more hazy, let's say. And in the same vein, it's too easy to take um, democratic values for granted. And also the political extremes play on strong emotions and this gets translated into their visual identity. So I was thinking that it was very clear to me what was going to happen in America with Trump on the scene, that we needed to have a mobilization of advertising, of cinema, uh, independent film Hollywood to cut this, nip this in the butt. And that, yeah. That's a really good point. It's maybe the, you shouldn't probably talk about it publicly, Ruth, because it might be the subject of a new book. You don't want someone stealing your excellent idea. <laughs> it, it's always, to me, um, it, it's, uh, it's astonishing to see Biden and Trump side by side. Uh, it's as if you're looking at color television and black and white television, and one, I guess, hopes that there is a nostalgia in America for black and white. Let, let's move on and, and talk a little bit about virility. Of course, Trump, when it comes to virility, is a joke, and so is Berlusconi. He's a 80- or 90-year-old man, always surrounded by very nubile females, but you're never quite sure what he got up to them, got a, what he got up or what he didn't get up with them. Uh, Mussolini was another kettle of fish, again, to, to put it crudely. Uh, I'm quoting you here uh, on Mussolini. You say, one thing was <laughs> Mussolini entered your life and your vagina, you were never free of him again. And I was really struck with your section on Mussolini uh, and his essential raping of, uh, of, of Italian, of, of half the, the women in Italy. Why is this so shocking? So I... I wrote about the sex life of certain strongmen who had sex addictions, uh, Mussolini and Gaddafi and Berlusconi to a certain extent, be in two veins. One, because one of the macro themes of the book is that although we're told authoritarianism is efficient system of governance, Mussolini made the trains run on time. I actually show that, and this is consistent from Mussolini, Putin, Trump, all of them, it's very chaotic and very wasteful, both because it kills off and forces into exile people. But the, the resources of the state get hijacked to the personal obsessions and personal projects and even private obsessions of the rulers. So the sex life of the strongmen in that Mussolini and then Gaddafi had these kind of state-funded operations of procuring women. And we've got Gaddafi, it was also men. Gaddafi also kept them captive. <laughs> he had a whole you know, compound where he kept them captive. Mussolini just had them, he had his secret police uh, scout women, or if they wrote him letters, um, and they in included a photo. So they would be invited to Palazzo Venezia, and, you know, he had their way with them, and then they would be on his radar. Uh, so think Jeffrey Epstein as though he headed the country and had access to all the resources. So it's, it's less sensationalism than showing how secret police, um, personal secretaries, all of the civil bureaucracy get 
roped in to service the leader's private um, desires. And one conclusion I make is that these strong men, they're, they're kind of hoarders. I don't use this word in the book, but they have a mania of possessing. They have to possess everything and everyone. They have to monopolize our attention. They have to have all the bodies they can have. And only they can have as many bodies as they want. So yeah, they're this kind of thing. It's again, it's it's out of the Decameron or something when it comes to Italy. Uh, and the idea of, of Mussolini entering your life in your vagina, of course, is extended in at least metaphorical terms when it comes to abortion and Trump, I would guess. Is that fair? Well, the the, the control over people's bodies, the control of their minds and their attention, they have to, again, monopolize they know very well how to monopolize our attention, but they also want control, especially over non-white male. If you're female, if you're non-normative sexuality, you have been as much the enemy of the strongmen as journalists and prosecutors um, and your fair game. And so I felt also writing as a woman, uh, I, I felt that one, one of the contributions of the book is that political science literature, which I use data sets, it's been very valuable to me, they don't take masculinity seriously on the whole. This, it, it's, it's too easy to, to ridicule Putin and Mussolini stripping off their shirt, but it's attached to, to real social policies and as we see with these, this kind of sex system, to violence. Um, and I wanted to, to kind of uh, put that in the equation. So I rank virility as a tool alongside propaganda, corruption, and violence for that reason. Uh, as you say, I think Mussolini is, and again, I use this term carefully, the, the founding father of the sexual strongman, the possessive sexual strongman of, of modernity. And I think you point out something very important about Berlusconi, that he is the founding father of modern media when it comes to strong. Now, you quote him here, if something doesn't appear on television, it doesn't exist. Again, it reminds me of my conversation uh, with uh, David Thompson and the importance of the movie being there, an American president whose whole perception of the world is television. Uh, there's a lot of that, of course, in Trump. But Berlusconi was the father of the manipulation both of television and the internet. Is that fair? Yes, and Berlusconi is extremely important. Again, he gets treated like a clown. He's not serious because he himself engaged in kind of antics to distract the press away from his corruption. But he laid down this template for a new century um, of kind of normalizing the right. He was the first to bring neo-fascists into the government. Um, he wrapped, uh, you know, he was so corrupt that he ended up passing dozens of, they were called ad personam laws. They were laws made tailored to his own private situation. So when he got accused of bribery, he had bribery classified as a lesser offense. And he had an authentic personality cult. Now he owned television networks. So in a way, you know, what Trump has accomplished, uh, not having state media like an old fashioned dictatorship, not owning, TV networks. He had he had Fox, right, as his kind of, I call them a co-producer of the Trump presidency. But Berlusconi, it was extremely important. He even had a very sketchy relationship with Putin. Um, so he yeah, ticks. Uh, you begin the book with uh, Berlusconi <laughs> taking one of his young ladies to what he calls Putin's bed. And we're not. Yeah. 
Putin, Putin gave him a bed. They were extremely close. And uh, I don't know if Italy, laughing or crying. Well, Italy's this was astonishing to me the similarities, although Trump's far more dangerous. Um, Italian foreign policy toward Russia became personalized and privatized to an extent that the foreign ministry was kind of taken out of the equation. And Berlusconi had what, what the, one of the US ambassadors called a bag man, a kind of Giuliani equivalent. This guy, Valentino Valentini, who was, who was fluent in Russian and went to Russia once a month to take care of, of Berlusconi's business. So, uh, the, and, and again, Berlusconi did all of this, but didn't, didn't destroy democracy, but he severely, he inflicted some real damage on, on, on civil society. And so this is a path that Trump is taking. And Italian democracy has, even before Berlusconi had, issues, of course, just as American democracy did. No, no conversation about strong men, authoritarianism in the 20th century, Ruth, of course, would be complete without a good Hannah Arendt quote. And you have an excellent one in the book. Um, you, I'm quoting Arendt that you quote. You said, the ideal subject of totalitarian rule is not the convinced Nazi or the convinced communist, but people for whom the distinction between fact and fiction, i.e., the reality of experience and the distinction between true and false, i.e. the standards of thought, no longer exist. So you bring up the issue of relativism and the muddying of truth, the internet, Facebook, Twitter, and so on and so forth in terms of their role in the advent of, of, of strong men. How much responsibility should we give technology and particularly the internet for the rise of strong men at the beginning of the 21st century? I think quite a lot. I mean, it's a double-edged sword. And so I talk about how there's digital storytelling that resistors use very effectively to create communities of support. They're also able to show people in real time these classic uh, scenes of resistance, like when the police are knocking down your door, uh, breaking your door down and you're hiding your documents. We, di we didn't see this before digital media. And now, like as in Putin's Russia, we're able to see it. So I have a, uh, I tell about uh, a dissident who uh, is showing, he's filming his hard drive being flown by a drone out his window to safety as the police are coming in his apartment. So it's, it's helped on one hand, but, you know, Facebook is a kind of co-author of Trump's campaign because they used, they had millions and millions of ads that they placed versus Clinton's campaign only placed about 60,000. So Trump's, Trump's uh, people in 2016 are, have, were very, very savvy and they used a kind of e-commerce model uh, to market Trump. This is what his Brad Parscal said. Uh, they could have been sneakers, but it's, you know, it's Trump instead. So it's a different frame for considering politics and it depletes politics of any kind of real meaning and it reduces it to spectacle and marketing. And so this is something that Berlusconi started and Trump is continuing. I don't need to tell you, Ruth, as, as I suggested at the beginning, it's November the 18th and we're still obsessed, unfortunately, unhealthily obsessed with how Donald Trump is going to exit, if he's going to exit, how he does it. You have a, a good chapter on the end of authoritarianism, you, uh, quoting you here, you say the authoritarian <laughs> has no chapter of faith. <coughs> yeah. It's not surprising that most authoritarians leave office involuntarily. Uh, given that, how do you expect the, the Trump's authoritarianism or his sort of 
quasi mock authoritarian rule to end? Well, is it ending? He, um, what's astounding and yet completely predictable is that he, he hasn't acknowledged that he lost the election, nor, and this is very disturbing, uh, nor has the GOP. And so illiberal rulers like Erdogan and Modi have called Biden to congratulate them, but not the GOP. And so, you know, it's a kind of psychological death for, the, for men of this temperament. Uh, and Trump maps on 100% to the personality of all these rulers, although in the outcomes are very different today than they were in the fascist era. Mussolini was hung, of course. Uh, Gaddafi was hung, drawn and quartered. Um, I can't imagine that happening to Trump and Putin, but it seems as if some sort of force is going to be necessary, certainly with Putin and probably with Trump in some way. Yeah, and, and one thing is that they they monitor each other's ends and, and they're influenced by the way other sitting rulers end. So Putin became very obsessed with, uh, during Arab Spring, what was happening to rulers who were deposed and in particular, apparently replayed the footage of Gaddafi being, you know, taken out of a hole in the ground and, and shot uh, and bayoneted. He was very concerned about this and this partly inspired him to uh, have his crackdown that he started in 2012. Well, I also think that that was perhaps <laughs> one of the reasons why he bet the house on Syria and, of course, won. That's, again, a, a conversation for another show. Um, finally, Ruth, how do we respond to authoritarianism? We had a young woman on the show last month, Hannah Tesla, who's an environmental activist. She has the rule of five R's, refuse, reuse, reduce, mm -hmm. recycle, raise awareness. Now, I'm not sure if uh, recycle is relevant for authoritarianism. But <laughs> my sense with uh, your book in the way it ends is you argue that the only way to confront authoritarianism is with citizenship and, 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 and activism. Is that fair? Yeah. And also what, what these men do is that when they, when they come into power, they expose all of the weaknesses in the system, the loopholes, the the, the, you know, the, the soft places where they can exploit it. Because today, democracy also dies through bureaucracy, through lawyers. And in Hungary is a model for that. He exactly. He's taken the Putin playbook and, 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 and effectively used it in Hungary. So we have a chance. We have, we've done a historic thing to turn back this authoritarian uh, capture process before it's too late. Most countries haven't had that. But we have to act very vigorously to uphold the uh, kind of rescue, the idea of ethics and accountability and transparency. We have to be very vigorous in protecting these values. Otherwise, we'll find ourselves in 2024 with someone who's going to continue, uh, who will be able to even more easily continue what Trump started. Yeah, vigor is, is, the, is the key word. We, mm -hmm. we need to respond vigorously to these people who promise virility. Viral, uh, virility, but who, of course, aren't quite as virile as they suppose they are. Um, important book needs to be read by anyone, particularly who, who, who's interested in, in modern Italian history. A Strong Man, Mussolini to the Present by Ruth Ben Ghiat. Uh, Ruth, you're in New York at the moment. In addition to your book, what should people be reading in these strange times as we wait for... Um, Donald Trump to exit the stage, and we're also still, of course, confronted with COVID. Um, I think 
uh, it's a very slim book, but powerful book by the Italian philosopher Giorgio Agamben called States of Exception, which traces out this, this kind of crisis time that uh, illiberal leaders uh, take advantage of, um, and it's very relevant for our days. Can you repeat that? Because usually I've heard of the book that people uh, cite, but I haven't heard of that book. States, yes, yeah, States or uh, State of Exception by Agamben, A-G-A-M-B-E-N. And it's available in English? Yes, and it's a slim but powerful book. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week. And thanks so much for listening.